Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angle on these different issues when it is relevant. So this week's Current Account, I wanted to talk about an election that just happened, which was in Taiwan. Usually in a territory like Taiwan, you wouldn't necessarily expect to be covering it on a show like this, but the election has a lot of potential ramifications for how to think about the relationship with China and also the relationship with the United States and China, which sometimes see Taiwan in a very different manner. So to try to help us make sense of all of this, we've invited a guest, David Sachs, he is a fellow for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations here in the United States. He has also worked for the U.S. government at times, including in Taiwan. So we want to focus a little bit today on the elections that just happened and maybe some of the implications. But to just start us off, let's talk about the elections themselves. So I think very importantly, they were both legislative elections as well as for the presidency. There were three main parties that took place. So maybe, David, to get us started, first of all, thanks again for joining us. But who are these key parties? What were their key platforms? And what were the results? Sure. So thanks for having me. The winner of the election for president on January 13th was the incumbent vice president of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, William Lai. The DPP is generally portrayed in Western media as, quote, pro-independent. But actually, I think what we've seen over the last eight years under President Tsai's leadership and now transitioning to President-elect Lai is that I would describe the DPP as pro-status quo and also a China skeptic party. So I don't see an appetite within the DPP to pursue Taiwan's de jure independence. It wants to maintain and protect the status quo where Taiwan is a de facto independent country, although most of the world, including the United States, doesn't recognize it as such. On the China skeptic side, though, the DPP wants to rebalance Taiwan's economy so that it's not so reliant on exporting to China. It wants to invest in trade relationships with the United States, Japan, and Southeast Asian countries. And it also wants to really focus on bolstering Taiwan's deterrent so that when the PRC looks over the Taiwan Strait and thinks about an invasion or a blockade of Taiwan, it concludes that doing so is too difficult, something that it, it can't achieve militarily. Now, Lai's primary challenger was Ho Yi of the opposition KMT or Nationalist Party. He is the incumbent mayor of New Taipei City. And the interesting thing about Ho is that I wouldn't describe him as a traditional KMT candidate. So he is a native Taiwanese, meaning that his family uh, emigrated to the island prior to the Chinese Civil War. And actually, if you watch the presidential debates and you watch Ho on the campaign trail, he's more comfortable speaking in Taiwanese than Mandarin Chinese, which is a very interesting thing for the KMT. So again, I think trying to kind of cultivate this image, you know, that it has more of a localized flavor and isn't just, you know, the party in exile from from China, essentially. So Ho wrote a quite comprehensive platform in foreign affairs where he outlined what his views were on cross-strait relations as well as on U.S.-Taiwan relations and defense policy. And a lot of that 
you know, frankly, could have been written by a DPP candidate. So I think there's been an interesting shift within the KMT, kind of what I would describe as towards the center. So a lot of emphasis on defense, deterrence, working more with the United States, not only on trade and economic issues, but also on defense issues. The major difference here between Ho and Lai is that Ho endorsed the so-called 1992 consensus, which was the basis of all of this cross-strait interaction that occurred under the Ma administration from 2008 to 2016 that culminated in the economic cooperation framework agreement that really liberalized a lot of trade and economic exchange between the two sides of the Taiwan Strait. Ho received about 34% of the vote compared to Lai's 40%. And so it wasn't really a close election, but Ho in the polls, you know, was on the upward trajectory leading into the, to the actual election on the 13th. And then the real wild card here in this election was Koenja of the Taiwan People's Party or TPP, a party that Ke created and that he's the chairman of. And there was an interesting dynamic at play here where there were negotiations between the TPP and the KMT to form a unity ticket um, to challenge Lai. And that really, in my view, would have been a formidable challenge to Lai. But those negotiations broke down. And in many ways, the fact that Ke was on the ballot with the TPP did split some of the vote and I think likely hurt Ho more than it hurt Lai. The results, again, Lai won the presidency with a plurality, but not a majority of the vote, 40%. The KMT gained 14 seats in the legislature. The DPP lost 10 seats in the legislature. And so in Taiwan's legislature, you have 113 seats. The KMT has 52 now. The DPP has 51. The TPP has eight. And then there are two independent legislators who tend to side more with the KMT. But the bottom line there is that, as you can see, no party has an outright majority. And so the TPP going forward will play a very important role, because if it's eight votes swing to the KMT, that's the majority, and that can make Lai's life very difficult and really put a halt to a lot of his legislative priorities. If the TPP aligns itself with Lai and the DPP, it can push through a lot of priorities for Lai and Ke. So there's very interesting bargaining that's going to occur now on who the legislative speaker is, on whether the DPP and Lai give Ke's party senior roles in their administration to get them on board. And that's going to occur over the next five months because another unique feature of Taiwan's political system is the election happened on January 13th. We immediately knew who the winner was, but Lai is not going to be inaugurated until May 20th. So you have an odd five-month window where Tsai is still the president, and you have a lot of, again, this bargaining that's going to take place. Cook, for his part, has said that he wants to basically play this swing role continually. On some issues, he'll back the DPP. On some, he'll back the KMT. You know, it makes sense because that preserves his negotiating space and his potential leverage. But I think that Ke will likely end up siding more with the DPP than he does with the KMT because he could probably deliver more for himself and for his party if he pursues that route. Okay, so let me try to think about it, how China views this election. Please correct me if I'm wrong here. My understanding is since the current president, Tsai, who's from the winner lies party, so basically you have the same party has now won again in the DPP, 
China and Taiwan since 2016, essentially at the leadership level, have almost no communications as far as I can tell. Well, I guess one, is that true? And then secondly, more importantly, is is that going to continue? Is that how China views this victory? Or is there maybe a little bit of, not relief, but if China views it as say, well, the party that seems to at least to be a little closer to us, the KMT, has now gotten control of the legislature. So maybe that actually puts us in a slightly better position on how our relations will develop. Um, I mean, how do you think China views this? So it's a really good question because I don't think China has decided how to view this election yet. And I've had meetings with Chinese interlocutors since the election, and it's clear to me that they are of two minds on this. Some are taking the optimistic view, saying, well, basically, we had already factored in a lie victory. This was what we expected. But the DPP didn't win the legislature. The KMT picked up 14 seats. And so governing for lie will be very difficult. At the very least, even if he wanted to pursue de jure independence, he doesn't have the backing in the legislature he would need to do that. So worst case scenarios can be avoided. And what we've seen out of Chinese officials since the election, too, is a focus on the fact that Lai only received 40% of the vote. So they are advertising this as Lai doesn't really have a mandate to do anything that he would want to do on that front. So again, that's the optimistic version in Beijing. But some that I've heard, interestingly, from, from Chinese interlocutors believe that there's not really much for Beijing to hold its hat on here because they view Ke as basically what we would call a pan-green figure, one aligned with the DPP. So if you add up Lai's votes and Ke's votes, that's basically you know 67% of the voters voted for a pan-green figure. And if you take that view, then really there's almost no audience in Taiwan that wants closer engagement with China. There is increasing skepticism of China, There isn't much appetite for pursuing closer economic ties. There's almost zero appetite for any type of political ties or negotiations. So there isn't that much to really celebrate with this election outcome. What we've seen is some pressure already being put on Taiwan after the election. So China flipped one of Taiwan's diplomatic partners, Nauru. It has also said that it is looking into the Economic Cooperation Framework Agreement that I mentioned, or ECFA. And in my view, it's going to uh, reduce Taiwan's market access to China, and it is likely going to impose tariffs and other barriers on Taiwanese goods going forward. We've seen some heightened military activity in the Taiwan Strait, although nothing approaching what we saw after Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan. But I think that military pressure is going to continue. And I think that what China is doing here now over the next five months is it's going to try to exert more pressure on Lai, hoping that that prompts him to endorse the so-called 1992 consensus or something like that in his inauguration speech. But Lai is not going to do that. And so then I think this is preserving some room, though, for China to really escalate things after May 20th and after Lai is in office. I personally believe that Lai is committed to maintaining the cross-strait status quo. He has said that on multiple occasions, including in his victory speech on January 13th. Um, But he is not going to meet the bar that China has set for him, which is actually, you know, in my view, set higher than the bar they set for Tsai. So he's not going to clear that. 
So we haven't seen, as you noted, any cross-strait communications at any official level for eight years, not just the presidential level, but any official government agency um, speaking to one another has not occurred in eight years. And so actually my base case scenario is that continues for another four years. So we will go again, in my view, on 12 years without any communication across the Taiwan Strait. That increases the chance of a misunderstanding or a miscalculation on both sides, and that you'll have some unintended incident that could spiral out of control. So I don't believe that basically a switch has flipped in Beijing now where they say, okay, well, lie won the election. So now it's time to change our policy completely. And now we're going to go towards a real confrontation with Taiwan. And we're going to, you know, pursue some non-peaceful resolution with Taiwan. I don't see that happening. I think Beijing is still relying on the strategy it's used for, for decades for Taiwan. So I don't think that we're now facing a, a point where there's for sure going to be a crisis or a conflict in the next four years um, and that that's imminent or inevitable. But what I do think we're going to see is continued heightened cross-strait tensions over the next four years. Okay. Uh, no, that's great. And so this is, I mean, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on, besides just explaining the elections, which you've done a great job on, is to also just think about, so this is the year that everybody's talking about of geopolitical risk. So we work with a lot of people in the financial industry, and they're thinking about this a lot these days. And one of the geopolitical risks that pops up all the time is the cross-strait tension between China and Taiwan and the implications of how it could affect U.S.-China relations and just U.S. foreign policy all in. You mentioned tensions rose pretty significantly back in late 2022 when then-Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, clearly against China's wishes. In the United States, we're here in the middle of a presidential election, which this could become an issue. We've also heard in the United States people preparing that, well, we think China is going to invade Taiwan or they're going to put a blockade on Taiwan or they're going to do something. In fact, actually, I, I feel sometimes we've heard some things even from U.S. government officials that I thought were a little beyond what seems to be in the intentions. But how do you see this developing? Because you just kind of said, like, there's no conversations going on between the government of Taiwan and China. The Chinese are clearly putting pressure on Taiwan, both economic and sort of military in a sense, I guess. You know, the fear would be is that something really does blow up. Well, I've asked a lot here, but how does the United States kind of look through this? Sure. Well, one reason why I think China's response to Lai's victory has not been so severe is also because what we've heard out of Chinese officials since the meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping in San Francisco is the prioritization of U.S.-China relations. In my view, China is pursuing you know, a floor or some stability in U.S.-China relations, obviously for its own interests, and I think it's primarily driven by economic considerations. Clearly, China's economy is not doing very well, despite its premier in Davos touting you know, a GDP growth figure that I don't think anybody believes. FDI is negative, U.S. export controls on technology, semiconductors, investment screening, and other things are really hurting as well. Uh, the stock market is not performing, youth unemployment is high. And so I think that Xi Jinping is hoping that 
if he provides the United States what it's asking for on fentanyl, you know, on mill-to-mill contacts and things of that nature, that perhaps we don't impose additional export restrictions on China and that we don't cause more economic harm, so to speak. And I think that in their view as well, if you add more pressure to Taiwan, what are we going to do? We're going to show support for Taiwan in response. And that's probably going to add to calls on the Hill to do more in terms of export controls and restrictions on investment flows into China. So all of which is to say, I think that because China is prioritizing the U.S.-China relationship, we haven't seen China have such a robust response so far to Lai's victory. So I think that that's an important factor here. But in terms of what the United States is going to do going forward, you know, I would say that a lot of it is on the security front, that the view is is deterrence in the Taiwan Strait is eroding, that the military balance continues to shift in China's favor. And so on the Hill, we've seen, you know, for the first time ever, foreign military financing extended to Taiwan, presidential drawdown authority authorized for Taiwan, which enables a more rapid transfer of weapons to Taiwan. When we're talking about debating Ukraine aid uh, and Israel as well, Taiwan is a part of that conversation, and it's a part of those bills now. So I think we're going to see a continued focus on security cooperation with Taiwan, helping them ensure that their military is able to really maintain deterrence, as well as working on the U.S. posture in the region with Japan, with the Philippines, with Australia and others. On economics, you know, USTR has undertaken what they've called the 21st century initiative on trade with Taiwan, and that had an early harvest, a basket of things that we've come to an agreement with Taiwan. Now, the Thai administration has touted that as the first bilateral trade initiative undertaken by the Biden administration. There's another kind of tranche of things, and these are the really tough issues that we have to discuss and get through. But my sense is that both sides are working towards that. And then, of course, the other priority, I think, from the U.S. perspective is supply chain resilience or whatever you want to call it, which is really working about really working towards, you know, getting chip investments in the United States by TSMC and others, making sure that this technology is not flowing from Taiwan to the PRC and and looking at, you know, supply chains throughout the region and making sure that those are resilient in case deterrence fails and we do have a crisis or a conflict. So I think that that's the trajectory of U.S. policy and U.S.-Taiwan relations going forward. And Lai has said basically that he wants to continue Tsai's legacy on these issues. So I don't think that we're going to see lie, pursue anything radically different on U.S.-Taiwan relations. I think we can basically map what the trajectory is going to look like over the next four years. Okay. Let me just do one last question as an out, so to speak. Is there any trigger or things that we should really be paying attention to that are coming up in the next six to 12 months? Obviously, one is the actual inauguration, which will take place in May, as you mentioned. And it could be, by the way, in Taiwan or in China. Is there something that we should be watching to pay attention to and that might signal either a change or, as you said, kind of maybe locking into what we've been watching over the last eight years? So I think the inaugural in May, as you mentioned, is a, is a critical event. When Tsai assumed office in May of 2016, you know, her inaugural address was read carefully in Beijing. 
uh, policymakers there decided that she didn't go far enough, which in my view, and I think in, in the view of many Chinese now, was a mistake for them to have reached that conclusion, but that's what they did. And then they cut off all communications and really started ramping up the pressure on Taiwan. Everything that I'm hearing coming out of China and from various interlocutors is that basically they are going to reject what Lai puts forward and that the pressure is really going to increase after his inaugural in May. So I think that's the next real event to watch. While for U.S.-Taiwan relations, we there's a congressional delegation in there right now. There's another congressional delegation heading there next week. I think we're going to con- continue to see congressional delegations go there. We're going to see more favorable legislation being passed through the Hill, especially on security assistance, but I also think in the economic realm and, and elsewhere. Um, and then, you know, of course, it's our own presidential election. And here I think, and I wrote about this for foreign affairs prior to Taiwan's election, I think that our own presidential election could actually be more important for Taiwan than its presidential election. And the reason why I say that is because you have a contrast here where President Biden has on four separate occasions said that he would come to Taiwan's defense. The administration walked that back each time and basically said, well, there wasn't really a change in policy. Don't read too much into that. But the president of the United States said that four times. Meanwhile, Trump has said, you know, in in the interview last summer with Fox News, well, I don't know. I don't want to say whether I would come to their defense. You know, they took our semiconductor industry away and that wasn't a very nice thing to do to us. Some books that were written by his former advisors said that he questioned what the United States would gain from coming to Taiwan's defense. And so China knows all these things that he said and all the things that have been reported. And so if you have, in my view, uh, uh, Trump being elected um, and defeating Biden, I think that could change Xi Jinping's calculus because the key deterrent for decades has been the assumption that the United States would intervene militarily on Taiwan's behalf. And if China is not convinced that we would do so, and it believes that this is just a question of a one-on-one conflict between China and Taiwan, then that's a much more comfortable proposition for Xi Jinping to make. But if Xi Jinping has to assume that it's China against Taiwan, the United States, Japan, and potentially others, then that's a very risky bet to be making. So I do think that actually the U.S. presidential election could play a big factor here in how this all unfolds over the next one, two, and and four years. I think that's perfect. David, thank you very much. Appreciate you coming on and giving us some very, very solid insights. Thank you. Well, now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways from my conversation with David. Two things I'm looking forward to in my one sports fact. So here are my three main takeaways. First, Taiwanese elections were held on January 13th. The current governing party, the DPP, has won re-election for the presidency, although they did lose control of the legislature, but just barely, to the KMT. Next, China has, in David's road, almost like a confusion as to exactly how to react to what happened in the elections. It seems like they're putting a fair amount of pressure on Taiwan, economic pressure, some diplomatic pressure. 
But that's pressure that they've been putting on Taiwan for a while. So it, it was a, a bit of a ratcheting up, but not that much. And I think that probably reflects how should China react to this election. And third, the United States electoral process this year, Taiwan's is likely to come up. I thought David put an interesting point at the end, which I hadn't thought about very much, which is that President Biden and former President Trump may have slightly different views on how to look at Taiwan, even if they seem to have somewhat similar views on how to look at China. So we'll see how that plays out. Now, the two things that I'm looking forward to. The first, I guess, is, has to be the inauguration of the new president in May of this year. And it sounds like, from what David said, is that the Chinese government will look very carefully at the speech that the new president gives in May. And second, the U.S. Congress is right now holding up Taiwan aid because it is tied in with Ukrainian aid, which is tied in with Israel aid, which is tied in with what's actually happening at our border in the United States, between the United States and Mexico, which is tied into the actual budget of the United States. As you can tell, it's complicated. So there are a lot of people who want to provide financial support for Taiwan, but it's also caught up in a lot of other domestic political issues, as well as other international political issues. So I'll be looking forward to see whether or not a resolution can come about. And now my one sports fact, and that is that 2024 is going to be a big year for amazing individual athletes representing their countries. Now, the first time to think about this, of course, is the Olympics. That's the biggest one. And the Summer Olympics will be hosted this year in Paris. But in the world of soccer, there's actually going to be the European Cup, which is where European nations face off against each other. The Copa Americana, which actually is where this is one of the first times where Southern American countries and Northern American countries will face off against each other. That will happen this summer. But right now, as we speak, the African Cup has already begun, and the Asian Cup has already begun. So in Africa, the perennial favorites are usually Egypt, which is a seven-time winner, Ghana, which is a four-time winner. They're not doing as well. So it's interesting because we've actually seen some coaches already being fired in the middle of the cup. And that's because there are countries such as Equatorial Guinea and Cape Verde, Cape Verde has never even made the final four, who have risen up and are actually doing extremely well in that cup. In Asia, the powerhouse usually is Japan or potentially Saudi Arabia, though the defending champion is Qatar. So we'll see how the Asia Cup develops. And it is interesting that these cups will be happening right now. And so get ready for a very interesting year in 2024. Anyway, that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. I really do want to thank David Sachs, fellow for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, for joining us today. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at iif.com. All our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.